signal means to stop whatever you are doing and get to the nearest safe place fast. Always remember, the flash of an atomic bomb can come at any time. Once upon a time, the world trembled at the thought of nuclear war. From the 1950s to the 1970s, every child was taught what to do in case the big one fell. We were all told that the bombs would come from an evil enemy miles away. Little did we know that we were all in danger of our own government dropping the big one on us. Today we have five stories of atomic bombs being dropped on American soil on the 155th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on coffee with Jeff. Good morning. It's Sunday. It's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. It's always a pleasant surprise to have you in my living room to hear one of my true tales. Feel free to grab a cup of coffee. I'll wait. Well, today's story took me a bit by surprise. I was thinking of telling the story of the Palomares incident in which a B-52 bomber collided with a KC-135 stratotanker over Spain, killing seven airmen and dropping three 70-kiloton nuclear bombs near the town of Palomares and another one into the sea. But as I researched that, I found that there had been other bombs dropped by mistake closer to home. So I ended up not using that story. What I did come up with were five separate tales of bombs being dropped in Northern America. And I've got to get going right away because today I have a bocce ball tournament to get to. Yes, bocce ball. I don't particularly like bocce ball, but there will be family and friends there and a keg of beer, so (laughs) that's why I go. And it's a tournament, so if I lose the first game, I can sit back and drink for the rest of the afternoon. And that might be the way to go. So let's get right to it. Five stories of accidental bombings. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it, just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover, just as you do in your school. Our first story of nuclear weapons being accidentally dropped takes place on the 14th of February, 1950. The United States was involved with an air exercise that simulated a nuclear strike combat mission against the Soviet Union during wintertime. A Convair B-36B with 17 servicemen aboard carrying a Mark IV atomic bomb was seven hours into a 24-hour mission in horrible weather in which one crew member described as minus 40 degrees, snow and wind, miserable. 30-year-old pilot Harold L. Berry was flying the giant bomber over the North Pacific Ocean 
when three of its six engines caught fire due to icing in the intense cold. The engines were shut down. The three engines left were not powerful enough to keep the plane flying, and it started to descend. It soon became obvious that the plane would not stay in the air. Dick Thrasher, who was on the plane at the time, later said, The pilot said we had to bail out, but before we did, we had to go out over water and get rid of this nuclear weapon, so we did that. The Mark IV atomic bomb that was being carried was jettisoned at 8,000 feet inside Canadian waters. As the bomb hit the water, or just before, it exploded, causing a massive shock wave that was visible on the water's surface. The good news is, especially for our Canadian friends, the explosion was not an atomic one. The Mark IV atomic bomb contained a substantial quantity of natural uranium and 5,000 pounds of conventional explosives, which caused quite a large explosion. It didn't, thankfully, have the plutonium core necessary for a nuclear detonation. The United States Air Force later stated that the fake practice core on board the aircraft was inserted into the weapon before it was dropped. The 17-man crew was ordered to bail out. The last one on board, Captain Harold Leslie Barry, set the plane on a course for open water and put it on autopilot. Unfortunately, five of the 17 men didn't make it. It is thought that they plunged into the icy water and died of hypothermia. Only one of those bodies were found. Captain Theodore F. Shriver's body was recovered from the crash in the summer of 1954. On the 20th of August, 1953, a Royal Canadian Air Force plane discovered the wreck of the B-56 on a mountain on the east side of the Kipsiaks Valley. Canadian authorities were never told that the aircraft was carrying a nuclear weapon. Now, we must be ready for a new danger, the atomic bomb. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. But if you duck and cover like Bert, you will be much safer. That was a tale in which a crashing plane did what it had to do in time of emergency. But our next story is one of, oops, we accidentally dropped a bomb on New Mexico. On May 22, 1957, an innocent civilian on the ground was killed when a nuclear bomb, perhaps the most powerful in the world at the time, was dropped from a B-36. But before you get all panicky, I'll point out that the innocent one who was killed was... Well, a dairy cow. No one is quite sure what happened, and there are various accounts. We do know that at one point, somebody on the plane yelled, Bombs away! And at the same time, the plane lurched upward about a thousand feet due to it losing so much weight all at once. Richard Dick Meyer, who is now 62 and a retired lieutenant colonel, who was aboard the plane at the time told the El Paso Times that he heard someone yell, Oh, expletive, it might have been me. The 21-ton Mark 17 bomb fell, taking the bomb bay doors with it. 
The crew, probably being very embarrassed, had to radio the base and tell them they, um, well, accidentally dropped a nuclear bomb. It exploded when it hit the ground four and a half miles south of the control tower at Albuquerque's Kirkland Air Force Base. Thankfully, the explosion wasn't a nuclear blast. Like in many of these stories, it was a conventional explosion that left a 12-foot-deep, 25-foot-wide crater. You see, for obvious safety reasons, the nuclear capsule had been separated from the conventional explosives during transport. There was, however, minor radioactive contamination. And like I said, there was one death, an innocent cow. No word on how the cow's family reacted to the news. This tale was kept secret until details were published by the Albuquerque Journal in a story in 1986 after a Freedom of Information Act request. Sometimes the bomb might explode without any warning. Then the first thing we would know about it would be the flash. And that means duck and cover fast, wherever you are. There's no time to look around or wait. Be like Bert. When there is a flash, duck and cover and do it fast. Yes, they were able to keep that story a secret for 29 years. But our next story, which is similar, one involving an accidental dropping of a nuclear weapon, couldn't be kept secret. There were witnesses and injuries, and this time not cows, but humans. This happened in the woods of South Carolina, where three children were playing. On March 11, 1958, at approximately 4.34 p.m., a U.S. Air Force Boeing B-47 Stratojet from Hunter Air Force Base, operating by the 375th Bombardment Squadron of the 308th Bombardment Wing near Savannah, Georgia, took off with a plan to fly to the United Kingdom and then to North Africa as part of Operation Snow Flurry. Like all planes in today's story, it was carrying nuclear weapons. Because, well, you never know when a war might break out with the USSR. While flying at about 15,000 feet over South Carolina, due to a faulty light in the cockpit, the navigator and bombardier, Air Force Captain Bruce Culla, was ordered to the Bombay area by the captain of the aircraft, Captain Earl Kohler. The light indicated that a bomb harness locking pin did not engage, and he wanted Bruce to check it out. While climbing around the belly of the airplane, Bruce, a little off balance, reached around the bomb to find something to grab onto to pull himself up. He did grab onto something. Unfortunately, it was the bomb's emergency release pin. The bomb was released and fell to the floor of the B-47. The weight of the weapon was strong enough to force the bomb bay doors open. The 26-kiloton Mark VI nuclear bomb fell to the ground. Now, it had been a quiet afternoon in Mars Bluff, South Carolina. Walter Gregg Sr., who had served in the Army during World War II, was working in the woodshop with his son, Walter Jr., when they heard the plane fly overhead. Effie, Walter's wife, was inside the house, and in the woods nearby, his children, sisters six-year-old Helen and nine-year-old Francis Gregg, were having fun with their nine-year-old cousin, Ella Davis. They were about 200 yards from a playhouse their father had built for them. 
Walter later said of the plane flying 15,000 feet overhead, It seemed a lot closer than that. It sounded like it was right on top of us. Suddenly there was a tremendous blast that shook the land. Dust and smoke everywhere. You couldn't see 10 feet in front of your face, Greg later said. The only thing I could figure is that the plane had crashed. Greg ran out to the yard in a panic, his ears ringing, thinking about his wife and daughters who he could hear screaming. There was a cut under his right arm. You really can't describe it, Walter Jr. later said. The noise was incredible, and the dust was crazy. You can't really describe it. The explosion could be heard up to five miles away. Helen Greg Halliday, who was six at the time the bomb went off, said 25 years later, It was a loud noise, a very loud noise. It was raining dirt and debris from the sky. I was scared. The bomb hit the playhouse in the woods. Thankfully, the nuclear weapon wasn't armed for an atomic explosion, but there was still 7,600 pounds of conventional explosives within it. The bomb left a 35-foot deep, 70-foot wide crater. The Gregg home was destroyed. Probably the most amazing part of this story was no one was killed. The Gregg family spent the night at the home of the family doctor who stitched their wounds. The most serious injury was to the young cousin who was to have surgery to repair some internal bleeding. It was incredible when you think about it that nobody was killed, Greg said. The United States Air Force was sued by the family of the victims who received $54,000, which is equivalent to about a half million dollars in 2018. The crater is still there, and there are signs that mark the area of the explosion. This family knows what to do, just as your own family should. They know that even a thin cloth helps protect them. Even a newspaper can save you from a bad burn. But the most important thing of all is to duck and cover yourself, especially where your clothes do not cover you. You would think that it would be a lot harder to do that, to release a nuclear bomb with just one lever, but it happened. You would also think that if a bomber was malfunctioning and it was carrying four nuclear bombs, it would be immediately recalled to base before it ran out of fuel. On the 14th of March, 1961, a bomber took off from Mathers Air Force Base near Sacramento, California, carrying eight men on a 24-hour exercise. About 20 minutes into the flight, the pilot noticed excessive hot air coming from his vent. No matter what he tried, he could not stop the cabin from heating up. At about six hours into the mission, and for the next hour, the crew discussed the issue, which was getting worse, with the Mathers command post. The command post told the crew to continue the mission as long as you can. Call us back after the second refueling tonight and advise us of your status. If it is intolerable, of course, bring it home. A little after 11 hours after takeoff, the bomber was contacted to see if they could finish, and they answered, We're gonna try! Shortly after, they were asked if the conditions were improving, and the pilot answered, Negative. Worse. Number three engine setting at 70%. We had it once before, and it cleared up, but this time it is not cleared as yet. Control advised, Understand that you will proceed on course, and we will be looking for you tomorrow. 
The heat continued to rise and became almost unbearable, like a sweltering oven. The crew would take turns going to the navigator station to cool off. The heat had been estimated to be around 125 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit or even higher. Suddenly, to the crew's surprise, the pilot window shattered. At that point, the decision was made to depressurize the aircraft in an attempt to continue the mission. Twenty minutes later, they descended to about 12,000 feet in the hopes they could keep going. Mather's control asked, Which windshield is cracked and what is your present altitude? They answered, The L4 window shattered. Heat unbearable at altitude. Two sick crew members. We have descended to 12,000 feet and plan to go 150 nautical miles north of TP 3.19 and return direct to Mather. They were advised to proceed as planned. Recommend you stay low altitude. Give us an estimate on your fuel as soon as you get close enough to contact us. The problem didn't go away, and the crew, due to the heat, became more and more disoriented. You know, I suppose military exercises are important, and even if the plane is carrying four nuclear weapons, which this one was, and is malfunctioning, as this one was, and the crew is sick and miserable, as in this case, one must go on. Now, for some reason, a refueling of the B-52 didn't provide enough fuel. This might have been that the gauges were malfunctioning or that the crew was having problems in the heat reading them, but at 22 and a half hours, the crew began to bail out as the fuel ran out and the plane was going to crash. The last one to eject was the pilot who made sure the aircraft was on its way to the clear flat Bartley Field area, 15.7 miles west of Yuba County Airport in California. The four nuclear weapons aboard the craft were torn from the plane when it crashed, but nothing exploded and no radioactive contamination was released. The only death involved in this accident was a fireman who was killed in a traffic accident on his way to the crash. No matter where we live, in the city or the country, we must be ready all the time for the atomic bomb. Yes, we must all get ready now, so we know how to save ourselves if the atomic bomb ever explodes near us. But there might not be any grown-ups around when the bomb explodes. Then, you're on your own. And we come to our last story, and perhaps the most scariest of all the stories, because this one probably represented the biggest threat of a nuclear explosion on United States soil. It happened two months before the one I just told, but I thought I'd save it for the end. It takes place in Goldsboro, North Carolina. Now, Goldsboro was a small town, and most, if not all, of the 29,000 people who lived there were probably asleep when two 3.8 megaton nuclear bombs fell from the sky a little after midnight. This one involves another B-52 Stratofortress that was part of a fleet of B-52s that took off from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in Goldsboro as part of Operation Coverall, an exercise in keeping aircrafts in the air for extended periods of time. If you've ever seen Dr. Strangelove, you'll know that the USA wanted to keep bombers in the air 24 hours a day, so if the Russians attacked with the first strike, they couldn't hope to avoid retaliation. The B-52 Stratofortress in our story was carrying two 3.8 megaton Mark 39 nuclear bombs. 
These bombs have about 250 times the destructive power of that dropped on Hiroshima. To keep these planes in the air, they would have to be periodically refueled while in flight. Around midnight, a KC-135 tanker approached the bomber to do just that. While connecting to the plane, and again, see Dr. Strangelove's opening credits if you want to see what that looks like, the tanker crew noticed a fuel leak coming from the wing on the right. They quickly contacted the aircraft commander, Major Walter Scott Tulach, and the refueling was aborted. The plane was told to stay on a holding pattern off the coast until a majority of the fuel was consumed. As the pilot attempted to do so, he noticed the leak was getting worse. Over 37,000 pounds of fuel had been lost in three minutes. The aircraft was immediately directed to return to land at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. As they attempted to descend, the pilot found it harder and harder to control the aircraft. It began to veer right and they found it difficult to keep the plane on course. At around nine or 10,000 feet, the pilot ordered the crew to eject as it became obvious the plane was going to crash. Seconds after they left the ship, the right wing tore off and the plane disintegrated. Unfortunately, two of the men were not able to eject and went down with the plane. Of the six that did, five landed safely on the ground. One did not survive. During the breakup, the two 3.8 megaton Mark 39 nuclear bombs were released and fell into an area of tobacco and cotton farmland about 12 miles north of Goldsboro. One of the bombs hit the ground at 700 miles per hour into a plowed field. When parts of the bomb were found, one of the four safety switches that kept the weapon from accidentally going off had failed. It was the second bomb which was more of a concern. On its way down, its parachute deployed. This was an indication that it was going through the steps to arm itself. It never went off and it actually never hit the ground. The parachute was caught in a tree and the bomb hung from ropes. When examined, three of the four arming mechanisms of the bomb were activated. The only one not activated was the same one that had failed on the other bomb. In other words, the people of Goldsboro, North Carolina were one low-voltage switch away from being vaporized. Don't take my word for it. In 2011, Lieutenant Jack Ravel, the bomb's disposal expert responsible for disarming the device, claimed we came damn close to a nuclear detonation that would have completely changed much of eastern North Carolina. The bombs would have had a 100% kill zone within 8.5 miles, and also there would have been death and destruction for miles and miles beyond that. In a now declassified 1969 report entitled Goldsboro Revised, written by Parker F. Jones, a supervisor of nuclear safety at Sanita National Laboratories, stated that one simple dynamo technology, low-voltage switch stood between the United States and a major catastrophe. And concluded, the MK-39 Mod 2 bomb did not possess adequate safety for the airborne alert role of the B-52. And that's not all there is to the story. You see, the other bomb, the one that hit the ground at tremendous speed, wasn't all recovered due to uncontrollable groundwater flooding. 
Still today, somewhere down in the field, is most of the thermonuclear stage containing uranium and plutonium. The core of the bomb was recovered, so there's no danger of explosion, but the United States Army Corps of Engineers purchased a 400-foot circular encasement over the buried components. In other words, the place where the bomb fell is off-limits to, well, everybody. At the time, the military told people four things. One, there were two bombs. Two, the bombs were unarmed. Three, they had both been recovered. And four, there was absolutely no danger. Joel Dobson, author of the book The Goldsboro Broken Arrow, said they were right about one of those four things. There were two bombs. What if a warning siren sounds? What should you do? Look for cover, the nearest cover. Don't try to make it home unless home is the nearest place to go. Don't hesitate. Find cover. Finding shelter quickly may save your life. If you can't get into a house, get behind a wall or a steep embankment on the side away from the city. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. A few things before I go. Like always, you can find different versions of these stories. I did my best to pick out what sounded true to me. Chances are I got a few little things wrong, but I did my best. And there are more than this. The History Channel website has an article called Nine Tales of Broken Arrows, Thermonuclear Near Misses Throughout History. And another site I found had 13 misses listed. I just picked the five that I thought were most interesting. You know, I've lived through the nuclear panic, at least the tail end of it. I was born in 1961. The Cuban Missile Crisis happened when I was less than two years old. I guess that was the peak of the panic, maybe? But still, I went through some of those silly duck-and-cover drills in school, as if climbing under our desk would help us at all. But what was the government supposed to do? Let us know that we would be cooked for sure if a bomb fell? In hindsight, it's easy to laugh at Bert the Turtle, but at least it gave the kids, uh, well, a little hope, even if it was false hope, and let them relax just a little bit. Was that craziness the right thing to do? I don't know, I suppose so. Well, now I've got a bocce ball tournament to get to, so let's get into the ending credits. Just a quick reminder, we could use a few pennies to help us keep going if you have a few to spare. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere thank you to all the patrons who support the show. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? In the latest episode of Moving On, Brecky, Linnea, and Nancy talk about the 1970 Gene Wilder, Donald Sutherland film, Start the Revolution Without Me. Find out what they thought about this movie and let them know if you agree. You can find this and other amazing shows at Psycon.fm. You know you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome. And you can use any of these places to, well, help me out. 
If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. Those really, really help me. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks if I survive this bocce ball tournament. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around she drank tea, but that was okay. She was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you Coffee with Jeff Coffee, more coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, 